Uh, in a little moment, Chris Conyers will come to give us the sermon. Uh, he'll be preaching from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'll read those before Chris comes to preach. Luke 10, from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Before we dig into God's word, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken. We pray that this morning you may give us ears that hear and hearts that understand so that we may be changed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, several weeks ago now, uh, many, those of us who are part of the Moore College community went on college mission, and one of the great joys for me was listening to many of the students tell their story about what Christ had done in their lives and it's a wonderful thing to hear about how other people's lives have changed from a story of sin to a story where they now live for Christ and seek to imitate him. Part of my own story is I grew up in a Christian family and I have known Jesus as my Lord since before I can remember. Uh, the church I grew up in, however, wasn't very uh, clear about biblical authority uh, or the sufficiency of scripture, we might say it was a, a moderately liberal. It, it taught the Bible, 
but didn't necessarily hold the Bible up as the way uh, to know God, uh, at least not in a clear way. And so it was as I moved to Sydney for university, uh, I learnt to read the Bible for myself and to put my confidence in it. Uh, and so I want to, this morning, have a look at another story in the Bible about, uh, well, that demonstrates, first of all, the authority of Scripture, and then use the fact that Scripture is authoritative to understand what this very famous story is about. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. This, I reckon, has to be a candidate for the most famous story in the world. Uh, Non-Christians will have heard the term Good Samaritan, even if they've never quite heard the whole story and aren't quite sure what's going on. It's a very, very famous story. But the fact that it's familiar doesn't mean that people understand what this story is about. Just to give uh, some possible ways that people might understand this story, uh, if we look at the beginning of the story, we have the lawyer come to Jesus and say, what must I do to be saved? And then if we jump to the end, Jesus said, you know, gives this example of the Good Samaritan and says, go and do likewise. What must I do to be saved? You must go and do what the Samaritan did and show great acts of mercy to people. Is that what we think it means? Is that, isn't that salvation by works? Because growing up, I wouldn't have blinked an eye at that. But of course, we're at Moore College. We're reformed. And we don't think it could possibly say that. And so that can't be what it means. That's how reading the Bible works, right? <laughs> but maybe we want to go with the historic Christian faith. Maybe we want to look at how this has been interpreted by the great ones through the ages. We could go to the church father, Origen. I quote from Origen's homily on this passage. The man who was going down is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise and Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers. The priest is the law. The Levite is the prophets. And the Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The donkey is the Lord's body. The inn is the church. And further, the two denarii mean the father and the son. The manager of the inn is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Saviour's second coming. Do you want to go with that historic interpretation? I mean, there's some fascinating ideas in there, but it does raise the question of where did any of that come from? How did, or how did Origen know that that was what any of it meant? It just seems to have come out of his mind because it seemed theologically helpful, perhaps? Or perhaps if we don't like those two options, we could go with the great uh, theologian of the late 20th century, Margaret Thatcher. She once commented on this parable, no one would remember the good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. He had money as well. So the way we apply this parable is to cut taxes. <laughs> this is a very famous story, but I hope you can see that doesn't mean it's easy to understand. 
And so I want this morning to pay careful attention to what the parable does and what the parable doesn't say so that we might understand it. Let's jump in. Uh, Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this question might sound familiar. It's asked at, at other times by the rich young ruler in different Gospels who's, you know, slightly different versions. Uh, but in this case, it's not a neutral question of someone coming to Jesus to actually, actually want the answer. You'll notice that the lawyer is asking this question to test Jesus. But Jesus isn't phased by the fact that he's being tested. He immediately responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, I personally never did a ministry apprenticeship, but I'm sure many people in this room have done one, and I'm told that many apprentices are taught one of the first things you do when you get the curly question is you turn it back on the person who asked you. What do you think? Well, your MTS trainer did not invent that technique. Here's Jesus doing it. The lawyer comes to Jesus with a trick question and Jesus just goes, well, what do you reckon? But not just, what do you think? You'll notice he points the lawyer not to the thoughts of his own mind, but to the words of scripture. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And so Jesus, even as he's being tested, is pointing this man back to the authority of Scripture so that he might engage with God's Word as he thinks through, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And for whatever reason, the lawyer's happy to go along with having the question thrown back at him and he gives the answer. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and... Love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, He's quite literally quoting the scriptures here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, love the Lord your God. And Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbour as yourself. That's the lawyer's summary of the whole law. And in verse 28, Jesus' response is more or less, yep, that's it. That's the answer. You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. So that's all you need to know. Love God, love your neighbour. We can all go home now, right? Unfortunately, the human heart is not quite so easily moved. Uh, The problem with this answer being framed in a legal term of here are the two things that you need to tick off is that the lawyer immediately goes looking for the loophole which is what we all do in our hearts as we kind of are confronted by law, is we want to find a way around it. We read the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? But before we jump into the parable that Jesus gives to answer this, the first thing you want to highlight is that the question that Jesus is answering has now changed. This is not a parable about what I must do to inherit eternal life. In order to inherit eternal life, I must love God completely and love my neighbour. But this parable is answering a slightly different question. What does it look like 
to love my neighbour? Who is the neighbour I have to love? Do you notice it's a limiting question? The lawyer here doesn't want to love everyone. I mean, that's too hard. We couldn't possibly do that. That can't be what it means. We need to find a way to make it manageable. Who are the people who really are my neighbour? I'll go and love them. Where are the reasonable limits on this command, Jesus? And so when we come to the end of the parable and Jesus says to the lawyer, go and do likewise, he's not saying, if you go and you know, do acts of mercy like the Good Samaritan, then you'll be saved. He's not saying it's just those who do charitable acts who will inherit eternal life. No, to inherit eternal life, you love God and you love your neighbour in this way. Jesus is not reducing the scope of what is required, but he's clarifying what this command always meant. And it's big. Love God and love your neighbour like this. So, let's jump into the parable. Who is your neighbour? Who is this person that you have to love as yourself? Well, the parable begins with some guy travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and before we've even got to the end of that first sentence, we already have something quite odd in the middle of this, in the beginning of this parable. Why is this guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho? Why has Jesus included that detail? Parables don't normally get that concrete. You know, the parable of the sower, it's in a field, but it could be any field. We're not told where the field is. The parable of the prodigal son, I mean, he seems to live on a farm, but we, we don't know the location of the farm. It, it's not relevant. Why does Jesus think it's relevant that this particular parable is happening on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? It's a strange detail to include. And then the second question, why is he going down? Why is it down from Jerusalem to Jericho? Well, the second question is a little bit easier because we can actually have a look at the way that road goes. And Jerusalem is at an elevation of 780 metres above sea level. Jericho is at 250 metres below sea level. So you, in a 26-kilometre walk, you'd go more than a kilometre downward. And so down is the literal direction. But that still doesn't tell us why Jesus is locating the Good Samaritan story upon this road. But if we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, then we can't just dismiss this detail as unimportant. It matters that it's this particular road. But the question is why? I'd like to give a suggestion. Jesus doesn't spell it out, so perhaps you might disagree, but here's my suggestion. I think Jesus is alluding to the big picture of his scriptures. It's not just talking about one particular passage, but if you read your Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, you see that God's salvation involves gathering people to Jerusalem. Just to give one example, Isaiah 66, verse 20, and they will bring all your people from all nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. Salvation means coming to Jerusalem, but here's a man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho of all places. Do you remember what happened at Jericho? 
God's people came into the promised land and they destroyed it. And Joshua, chapter 6, verse 26, Joshua says, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. Jesus may be doing something very subtle here, but as someone walks from Jerusalem to Jericho, they're going from the city where God's temple, God's presence is toward a city that is cursed. Put simply, as this man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, he has his back towards God and is walking toward a curse. But as this man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So we've got a man walking away from the presence of God, and he's now all but dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. The priests, of course, are the ones whose job it was to offer the sacrifices in the temple. And do you notice which way the priest is going? Down. He's also going the wrong way. So too a Levite, that is, so too, he's travelling in the same direction, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levite, responsible for managing the temple making sure all of the laws around the sacrifices were kept so the priest could concentrate on the sacrifice itself. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Why pour on oil and wine? Well, I'm not a first century doctor. I don't know exactly how they would have described these things, but in rough terms, the wine is a disinfectant. The alcohol will help kill the germs. They didn't have Dettol. They used wine. Uh, And the oil, uh, I'm a little bit less clear, but I think a layer of oil will keep out moisture and dust and it will actually be something like the first century equivalent of a Band-Aid. The Good Samaritan is giving good practical care to try to look after this man who is half dead. He's doing everything he can to restore him to health. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. See, in this parable, Jesus paints this amazing picture of sacrificial, loving, practical care for a stranger. It is a beautiful picture. And that's one of the reasons this story is so famous. And if you can't appreciate the beauty of this story... You need to go back and read it again. But it's not just a beautiful story because Jesus goes on to apply it. We can't leave it as this story 
you know, this story that Jesus told, but we actually need to think about what it means for us and how we live. And so as Jesus comes to apply this parable, he asks his audience, which of these three demonstrated their love for their neighbour? Which of these three should be our role model? Well, actually, having a look, that's not what Jesus asked. Growing up in Sunday school, hearing this story taught many times, that was kind of the impression I always got, that this was about who's the role model, who should I be like, I should be like the Good Samaritan. But if you have a look at the question that Jesus actually asks, it's a little bit different to that. Jesus' actual question is, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? We began the parable by asking, who is my neighbour? And then Jesus asks, who is a neighbour to the half-dead man? That is, Jesus' question in the first instance puts us in the position of not the Samaritan, but the man who's lying dead on the road. That's where we begin to think about who is my neighbour. And the lawyer's answer, of course, is the one who had mercy on him. Is is this the answer that we expect? That as I think about who is my neighbour that I should love, who has been a neighbour to the half-dead man? Well, it's the one who has mercy. I I should love the one who's had mercy on me. That seems to be the logic of Jesus's question and the lawyer's answer. At least in the first instance, I love the one who has shown me mercy. It's not quite what we're expecting. Now, of course, it's not the whole story, because being a neighbour is a two-way thing. If I'm your neighbour, you're my neighbour, and so we love one another. So I'm not saying that we don't go and love those who don't show mercy to us. But Jesus's question begins by putting us in the position of the half-dead man. Am I picking at details a little bit too much there, do you think? Am I nitpicking at, you know, Jesus's question is worded slightly strangely and so I'm just reading too much into it? You could argue that. Except I do think that the details of Jesus' question matter. But there's a second reason why I think Jesus, first of all, wants us to consider ourselves from the position of the man who's lying half dead on the road. And that is, when the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? Jesus could have said, everyone you meet, everyone who's in need, If that was all Jesus wanted us to know, he could have just given us one sentence, but he didn't. He gave us a story, and this story is actually important in its own right. We don't read a parable in order to get the point and then forget the parable itself. No, the the form that Jesus gives us is part of the Word of God, just as much as any conclusion that it might teach. So I want you to pay attention to this particular story. Let me see if I can summarise it for you. 
we've got a man who's walking away from where God's presence is, and upon this path, he's all but dead. The priest who makes sacrifices doesn't help, neither does the Levitical law keeper. But then, along comes a man who does not belong in this land, a man whom the Jewish people would despise and reject. And this man takes mercy on the half-dead man, cares for him, and restores him to life. This despised and rejected one stays for a little while, but then he leaves, he leaves him in the care of another, promising to return and see the job completed. And in order to do this, he, promises, he, he pays the full price to see it done. Can you see the shape of this story? Once you recognise the way this story progresses, maybe some of Origen's bizarre assertions that I mentioned at the beginning seem a little bit less bizarre. But I'm not suggesting some uncontrolled, this must really mean that. All I want to do is draw your attention to the story that Jesus told. I don't want to impose anything on it from outside. I just want to listen to the shape of the story of the Good Samaritan. Because it's pretty clear that this story corresponds in all sorts of ways with the story of Jesus, the one who came to earth, even though he didn't belong here, the one who was despised and rejected who showed mercy to people who were dead in their sins. Christ, who paid the price to see the job done. Who is your neighbour? Who must you love to inherit eternal life? Well, first, you need to love Christ. If you want to inherit life, you must love God the Father, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you must love the Son, Jesus Christ, who is your first neighbour, the one who came and showed mercy to you and lifted you off the ground where you were dead. But we can't stop there either, because Jesus has just a little bit more to say. Jesus told the lawyer, go and do likewise. Because, you see, as Jesus has come and loved us, we are no longer the half-dead man on the road. We have actually been given new life. We've been made into new people. And so now we're told to go and do as the Good Samaritan did and love those who are dead on the road. Go and do likewise. See, as new people in Christ, it is possible for us to live out the Samaritan story because in living out the Samaritan story, we're living out Christ's story and we are being made into the image of Christ. We live as Christ lived and therefore we can live as the Samaritan lived. We too live as foreigners in this world we too have the task of loving people who are going the wrong way, who are half dead 
in their sins. And we're called to see, that see to their needs so that they might live. If Jesus was the first to actually live out this story of the Good Samaritan, as his people, we are called to live this story too, just like he did. We are to go and do likewise. But as I finished, brothers and sisters, if you're going to go and do likewise, to live as the Good Samaritan did, to live as Christ did, you will pay a cost. See, for the Good Samaritan, the cost was two denarii. That's two days' wages. For Jesus, the cost was two days dead in the grave. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will pay a steep price. I don't know what price you will pay specifically. Some of us will experience rejection by friends. There may be some in this room who've already been rejected by family disowned because you follow Christ. You may be called to make financial sacrifices. We all make some financial sacrifice. We give to church. I know it's costly to come to college. Some will be called on to make much greater sacrifices and life will be uncomfortable. As you follow Christ, you will leave behind homes that you have known. You will leave behind loved ones. You will leave churches that you've invested in and it will hurt there will be inconvenience there will be hard work there will be difficulty there may even be danger and if I can speak to those who are here for open week that's whether you come to college or not living out the story of the good Samaritan will never be cheap it will never be easy so, brothers and sisters, are you willing to pray the pi- pay the price to follow Christ? Just like Jesus did, did, the price he paid. My prayer for you is that you will pay that price, gladly. You will face whatever suffering is along this road as disciples of Christ. Not because it's fun, it won't be but because that's what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbour. And that's how you inherit eternal life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we can understand how it is that we inherit eternal life. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus lived out this story that he told, the story of the Good Samaritan, bringing mercy and life to those who are dead in their sins. And Father, we pray that as Christ's people, we too might go and do likewise and love the people around us who are dead in their sins. And Father, we pray that you may work in our hearts so that we may pay the price gladly to follow Christ to give up our lives and to serve him. Amen.